Welcome to OCS Field Guide, the podcast that helps you study smarter for the OCS exam. Hello and welcome back to the OCS Field Guide podcast. Today will be part one of our coverage of the ankle stability and movement coordination impairments lateral ankle ligament sprains 2021 revision, and it's about as long as the name, but we'll do our best to condense this down to what you need to know. This CPG looks at acute lateral ankle sprain and chronic ankle instability. Lateral ankle sprains are among the most common injuries sustained, but only about 50% of individuals who sustain an ankle sprain actually seek medical attention. Even still, it is the most common foot and ankle injury for which individuals seek care. Of those, only 7-11% to who do seek care are referred to a rehab specialist. Maybe this is part of why the recurrence rate is so high. Incidence of chronic ankle instability in various younger athlete populations is as high as 20 to 29%. The highest rate of injury occurs between 14 and 37 years old. Ankle sprains occur much more frequently in indoor court sports than field sports, with incidence rates of about 7 injuries per 1,000 exposures in basketball and volleyball compared to 1 injury per 1,000 exposures in field sports. That will be important information to remember for injury prevention in our next podcast. Recurrent ankle sprain and chronic ankle instability are also much more prevalent in female athletes and are more prevalent in high school athletics than collegiate levels. At the collegiate level, about 12% of all reported ankle sprains were recurrent injuries and were most often sustained in women's basketball, outdoor track, and field hockey, and for men were most often sustained in basketball. However, these numbers are likely all lower than reality as they are from retrospective studies, and we know half of injuries are not reported at all. The only prospective study performed to date showed about 40% of individuals who sought care for a first-time lateral ankle sprain went on to develop chronic ankle instability. Remember that. Now, That was a lot of numbers that you don't necessarily need to remember. Just bear in mind that ankle sprains are very common, especially in females and adolescents, and especially in court sports. A very high percentage of individuals who have a new acute lateral ankle sprain will develop chronic ankle instability, which likely has implications for how much we should be treating these individuals. Let's talk about the pathoanatomic features of lateral ankle sprain. When talking about lateral ankle sprain, we have classically just talked about it in terms of how badly injured the anterior talofibular ligament and potentially the calcaneofibular ligament are sprained. However, the pathoanatomy of this injury is much more nuanced, with a number of common concomitant injuries present. The most common being bone bruise, which can be noted on MRI. Ankle effusion is very common and can be associated with the severity of the associated injuries. However, the amount of swelling is not associated with whether or not a fracture is present. Ankle impingement symptoms are also very common following lateral ankle sprain, affecting 25% of individuals and potentially accounting for pain with gait either due to soft tissue injury, post-traumatic osteophyte formation, or altered kinematics due to lengthened ankle ligaments. 
Other common injuries associated with lateral ankle sprain include fibularis muscle or tendon injury, ostrigonum syndrome, osteochondral injury, syndesmotic or deltoid ligament injury, midfoot joint injury, and nerve pathologies. For a more in-depth look at a lot of these injuries, check out our most recent study session on our Patreon page that David led on the ankle and foot, where he does an excellent job of distilling a ton of info on all of the most common traumatic and atraumatic ankle foot pathologies. Beyond these more anatomic features, the other features listed include sensory motor and range of motion deficits, leading to altered movement patterns. That will be more fleshed out as we work through the other sections. Individuals that recover from a lateral ankle sprain within a year with near-normal function and return to activity are classified as copers, while those that do not are considered to have chronic ankle instability. The pathoanatomy of chronic ankle instability does not have a lot to do with specific structure. Actually, development of chronic ankle instability is not associated with how many ligaments are injured in a sprain, though there does seem to be more chronic ankle instability with more severe concomitant injuries such as those listed above. However, the biggest influence appears to be persistent sensory motor and range of motion deficits at the foot, ankle, knee, and hip, with the following issues often present. Abnormal timing of muscle activation, decreased force output or strength, impaired proprioception, decreased ankle dorsiflexion range of motion, and increased subtalar and midfoot motion, as well as some complicated-sounding centrally mediated things like impaired spinal-level sensory motor control and reflex inhibition and supraspinal corticomotor abnormalities. In other words, we know that we need to retrain our central nervous system rather than just looking at the peripheral structures. Now let's look at risk factors. The CPG breaks down risk factors into acute and chronic lateral ankle sprain, and intrinsic versus extrinsic, and modifiable versus non-modifiable. I feel the short summary likely includes what you need to know. The most pertinent risk factors for acute lateral ankle sprain are female sex, hip abductor and extensor weakness, poor performance on balance and hop tests, and participation in a court sport. You heard that right. Just participating in a court sport versus field sport puts you at higher risk for lateral ankle sprain. So think, females with weak hips playing basketball and volleyball, and you have the highest risk group. The following are the risk factors for developing chronic ankle instability. Not using prophylactic bracing, not participating in an exercise balance program and poor functional performance after an initial lateral ankle sprain, participating in sports in general, and higher BMI. It is interesting how the two differ because not using bracing and higher BMI are not risk factors for acute lateral ankle sprain, but they are for the chronic side. Let's talk about the clinical course of an ankle sprain. The CPG splits this into acute and post-acute, and then chronic ankle instability. Acute is defined as the first two weeks following an injury, where the post-acute period could last up to 12 months following an injury. The recovery following an ankle sprain is varied. 
Full return to participation is typically somewhere between one day to a little more than three weeks, but full recovery with no symptoms or limitations may take months or years and cannot be expected in all patients. However, evidence support that a supervised, impairment-driven exercise program can allow for faster recovery and help prevent re-injury. From this, the authors make a B-level recommendation that clinicians include the following in an initial evaluation, as these factors likely influence the clinical course and time to recovery following a lateral ankle sprain. Patient age, BMI, pain coping strategies, report of instability, history of previous sprain, ability to bear weight, pain with weight bearing, ankle dorsiflexion range of motion, medial joint line tenderness, balance and ability to jump and land when safe. That being said, there is no algorithm or specific cutoffs for these values overall that gives us a more cut and dry prognosis. Overall, worse or poorer scores or values in these areas are going to lead to longer time to recovery. Now for chronic ankle instability. In general, people are considered copers after lateral ankle sprain if their symptoms of pain and instability are gone in under a year, as we've already mentioned. If they have pain or instability extending beyond one year, they are classified under chronic ankle instability. Remember, about 40% of first-time ankle sprains will go on to develop chronic ankle instability. Those that go on to develop chronic ankle instability may have sensory motor and range of motion impairments at the trunk, hip, knee, ankle, and foot, as well as impaired central mediated processes. So the CPG gives the following C-level recommendation. Clinicians may include previous treatment, number of sprains, pain level, and self-report of function in their evaluation, as well as an assessment of the sensory motor movement systems of the foot, ankle, knee, and hip during dynamic postural control and functional movement. If you're wondering what exactly that would look like, I would think about things like proprioceptive and balance testing on the uninvolved and involved side, since this is potentially centrally mediated for that sensory motor piece and things like hop testing and Y or star balance testing for those functional and dynamic control pieces. Again, we don't have specific measures that they recommend or cutoffs that tell us more about the clinical course, but we're pretty sure people who are worse on those kinds of tests are going to have an extended course of care. Let's talk diagnosis and classification. This 2021 revision recommends classification in the acute lateral ankle sprain group with a history of sudden onset with an ankle inversion-related injury, negative Ottawa ankle rules, positive reverse anterolateral drawer test, positive anterolateral Taylor palpation test, and positive anterior drawer test. Traditionally, I think we all would have just thought of the anterior drawer test to test the ATFL, and the Taylor Tilt test to test the CFL, which are the two potentially involved structures in the lateral ankle sprain. But newer studies have found superior sensitivity and accuracy of the reverse anterior lateral drawer test and the anterior lateral Taylor palpation test than the traditional anterior drawer test for assessing the ATFL. 
the reverse anterior lateral drawer test is reverse because it is trying to glide the distal tibia and fibula posteriorly on the talus rather than translating the talus anteriorly. The examiner bends the patient's knee and braces the heel against the table. Using one hand, you put the ankle in about 10 to 15 degrees of plantar flexion and what they call unconstrained internal rotation to give you that lateral piece as you're translating the distal tibia and fibula. Then you palpate the anterior lateral talus to detect motion. The other hand grasps the distal tibia and fibula just above the talocrural joint and drives it posteriorly. A positive test is noted with greater motion on the involved side than the contralateral side. The anterior lateral Taylor palpation test is pretty much just the anterior drawer test, but the examiner palpates the lateral aspect of the Taylor dome during the test to assess how much anterior translation of the talus occurs. Oddly enough, while the anterior lateral palpation test had better sensitivity than the anterior drawer test, it was not as specific. The traditional anterior drawer test had poor sensitivity, but perfect specificity. This is probably why they chose to include both tests, even though they are a variation of the same test. Put this all together and you have a B-level recommendation that clinicians should use special tests including the reverse anterior lateral drawer test, anterior lateral palpation, and the traditional anterior drawer in addition to a thorough history and physical examination to aid in the diagnosis of a lateral ankle sprain. For diagnosis of chronic ankle instability, we are working to have a specific internationally recognized criteria for identifying chronic ankle instability, but we just aren't there yet. So they recommend using the following. History of at least one significant ankle sprain, reports of giving way or instability, an episode of a subsequent ankle sprain or perceptions of ankle instability, decreased performance on functional performance tests, and scores on the following discriminant instruments. This is the more important part. A score of 11 or greater on the Identification of Functional Ankle Instability Scale, or the FAID. Again, that's a score of 11 or greater. Then a Cumberland Ankle Instability Tool score of 25 or less, and or four or more answers of yes on the ankle instability instrument. Let's repeat that. An IDFAI score of 11 or greater, a CAIT score of 25 or less, and four or more yeses on the AII. If you're wondering what functional performance measures they're talking about, they used the side hop, timed hop, multiple hop, and the foot lift test, as well as the star excursion balance test, specifically the medial, posterior medial, and anterior medial directions. Altogether, that's a B-level recommendation for using reliable and valid discriminant instruments such as those above, as well as a battery of functional performance tests. Next, we'll cover differential diagnosis. The Ottawa ankle rules are likely the most important and likely information to come up on the exam from this section regarding acute lateral ankle sprains. You should know these like the back of your feet. 
Of note, the original CPG advocated using the Ottawa rule or the Bernese ankle rules, but the more recent research has shown less than optimal sensitivity for the Bernese rules. So it is now not recommended unless using along with the Ottawa ankle rules. I'm going to say don't worry about knowing the Bernese rules. For the Ottawa rules, any of the following will warrant referral for radiographs and radiographs specifically, not MRI or CT, unless it is pertinent based on the radiographic findings. Here are the Ottawa rules. Inability to bear weight and take four steps immediately after injury or in the emergency department. And do note, this is immediately after or in the emergency department. So if they could not bear weight and take four steps right after, but can when you're seeing them a little bit later, this is negative. Next is tenderness to palpation along the posterior edge or tip of the medial or lateral malleolus. For both, it is specifically the tip or the posterior edge along the distalmost six centimeters of the bone. Note, the anterior aspect is not included, especially with the lateral malleolus, and this is, makes sense because this will likely be tender due to soft tissue injury, but that won't mean there is a fracture. Next is tenderness to palpation to the navicular, and finally, tenderness to palpation at the base of the fifth metatarsal. The authors do note that ability to bear weight alone is not enough to rule out fracture and decreases the sensitivity from nearly perfect down to 88% if you do not use the palpation pieces. This covers the most common fracture sites associated with an ankle injury, but there are other very common either concomitant or isolated pathologies that could be present. Beyond fracture, I think the most important is being able to differentiate a syndesmotic injury, also known as a high ankle sprain, from a typical lateral ankle sprain, whether it is in isolation or occurring along with the lateral ankle ligamentous injury. A syndesmotic injury will more commonly happen with hyperdorsiflexion and external rotation of the foot than with an inversion injury due to this motion spreading the morris apart and gapping between the tibia and fibula. Think about a planted foot where the lower leg is internally rotated and or flexed forward forcefully. The location of pain, swelling, and or bruising is going to be about a centimeter or two higher at the distal tibiofibular joint rather than between the distal fibula and talus. The best test we have for the syndesmosis injury is the squeeze test, where you squeeze the distal fibula and tibia together above the malleoli, which in a positive test will reproduce pain. For chronic ankle instability, there is a very tangible list of things to look out for that could be causing someone to still have pain or instability over a year following initial injury. Look out for ankle impingement, fibularis muscle or tendon pathology, osteochondral lesions, synovitis, and bear in mind there could be chondral lesions, bony or avulsion fragments creating impingements or loose bodies in the joint, a syndesmotic injury, arthritis, or a bifurcate ligament injury. Also remember there could be symptomatic accessory ossicles such as ostrigonum syndrome. 
For imaging in these cases, they note that the ACR appropriateness criteria say that when symptoms persist for more than six weeks, radiographs are usually appropriate. And if they are negative, but instability, impingement, or osteochondral or tendon injuries are suspected, an MRI without contrast is usually appropriate. So not a super clear guideline here, but I think you can safely say that if you were to be given a case that fits either a later subacute greater than six weeks or chronic ankle instability presentation that has never gotten imaging, especially if they were to not get better with treatment, you should refer for radiographs. And if those are negative and something else is fishy, go ahead for MRI without contrast. Let's go ahead and knock out what remains of the exam section, beginning with outcome measures. There is A-level recommendation to use the foot and ankle ability measure and the LEFS. They also include the PROMIS, or Patient Reported Outcome Measure Information System Physical Function, or PF scale, and the Pain Interface, or PI scale. These can be used with acute lateral ankle sprain or chronic ankle instability patients. Just to refresh, the FAM, as it sounds, is an ability measure, so higher scores mean higher function. It's usually converted to a percentage of function, so the MCID is 8% for the ADL subscale and 9% for sports subscales. The LEFS, again, is a function scale, not a disability measure, so higher scores mean higher function, and it has an MCID of 9 points. Sorry to give you percentages for one and points for another, but that's just how it's reported. Don't worry about the MCIDs and all for the PROMISE scale, but higher scores on the PF scale mean better function. There is also a C-level recommendation for the use of other measures to capture psychological status, such as fear or anxiety about re-injury, kinesiophobia, and fear avoidance. For acute and post-acute lateral ankle sprain, clinicians may use the pain self-efficacy questionnaire, and for folks with chronic ankle instability, you may use the shortened TEMPA scale of kinesiophobia, known as the TSK11, and you can also use the FABQ. For both of them, higher scores are going to indicate worse fear of movement or fear avoidance, respectively. Don't worry about the MCIDs and all that for these. For physical impairment measures, there is A-level recommendation to assess and document ankle swelling, range of motion, especially dorsiflexion, using the weight-bearing lunge test. Also include Taylor translation, Taylor inversion, and single-leg balance, specifically using single-leg balance on a firm surface with eyes closed for static balance and for dynamic balance using the star excursion balance test especially the anterior, anterior medial, posterior medial, and posterior lateral reach directions. All of this is for any of our groups, acute, post-acute, or chronic ankle instability. There is also a C-level recommendation that you may also assess and document hip abduction, extension, and external rotation strength for chronic ankle instability folks. Both of these recommendations are to be done at baseline and two or more times over an episode of care. 
For physical impairment measures, there is a B-level recommendation for using reliable measures of activity limitation, participation restriction, and symptom reproduction at baseline and two or more times during an episode of care with lateral ankle sprain or chronic ankle instability. The most specific they get is that you should specifically include measures of single leg hopping under timed conditions when appropriate. In the interest of time, we'll go ahead and end there for this episode and pick up with interventions on our next episode where there will be a lot more fun information and strong recommendations. Thanks for listening to OCS Field Guide. Don't forget to subscribe and then head to physiofieldguide.com for practice questions and more resources.